Welcome back to the Alaska Music Show and Podcast. One of my favorite jobs is recording the Anchorage Symphony Orchestra. They recently performed the first concert of the year, and I was lucky enough to spend some time here in the studio with the amazing Elizabeth Schulz, the musical director and conductor of the Anchorage Symphony Orchestra. We had a wonderful conversation in which Elizabeth describes the process of selecting music for the year, performances, the history of music and composers, and the reasons that a symphony is so important to a community like Anchorage. And this year, as the symphony renews itself, we start off by talking about the audition process. Here's my conversation with Elizabeth Schultz. This year, there have been auditions. The auditions are to replace some absolute gems we've had in the orchestra who are retiring out. What is the process of an audition with the Anchorage Symphony, and through you specifically, because you have insights into how they're going to operate within an organization that you are in front of? Oh, my goodness. Well, we have auditions. We call for candidates, applicants, announce the open position. And we have a requirement that they play if they have like a principal position, which is a kind of solo level position. Um, Often in the music, they're called to play by themselves, big, big swaths of music on top of the rest of the orchestra. And so they're called principal players. They sit at the front of their section. And so that is a very grueling, at least 20-minute audition where they play nonstop from a concerto. Sometimes they'll play a little Bach. Uh, if they're a string player, I want to hear a little Bach to see if they could do some Baroque, see what their styling is, what their approach to different styles of music is. Is it a prepared audition? Yes, they know it's all prepared. Time? I don't... No, I don't. There's no point in I don't reading. surprise anybody. Yeah. I give them so much work already. I can tell the committee, there's a committee of of a jury, I suppose you would call it, of listeners. They are all colleagues that are principals in the orchestra in the same family of instruments, along with the assistant conductor uh, will join me as well. And sometimes, well, the personnel manager runs the whole thing brings people in and off the stage where we bring them to play. Right. And the excerpts from the orchestral repertoire that we ask them to play are what I would call standard in the in in the industry. In other words, these are excerpts from major works of art by Beethoven and Richard Strauss and Wagner and Mozart. And these are pieces that everyone will have heard and one hopes have played. And they are the the creme de la creme of difficulty and artistic opportunity, I would say, to hear how they how they play. Now for, for the strings, you know, you see them moving all the time. They have more notes. <laughs> a trombone <laughs> may have, a trombonist may have 20 to 300 notes in a piece. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, a violinist may have 10,000 in the same piece. Yeah, you know, right. it just depends. So the level of difficulties, I try to just find those spots in every instrument that really tests the whole range of their ability mm-hmm. as an artist, as a musician, and also as a technician. And so we, we listen, and then, of course, we compare to all the different candidates, and the person who comes out as the winner tends to have checked all the boxes that we're looking for, yeah. which is a, uh, you know artistic ability yeah. and technical virtuosity and just a mastery of the repertoire and, and conveys a, a self-confidence 
that you know would be that would benefit the section that they belong to or that they will lead. In particular, this year, I know the timpanist who made it through the audition, and mm -hmm. it, but previously you had a you had a placeholder, Stephen Alvarez. Was, um, uh, two members of our percussion, including the, our principal, um, took over timpani duty last year, and we did identify a winner this year in the audition, which was exciting, and I'm looking forward to, he has not taken over uh, the spot yet, yeah, but I'm looking forward that. to working with him next month. And he, there's a bit of churn, probably, right, isn't there, we, like violins, We replaced our, our oboe section, mm -hmm. um, our remarkable duo of Sharman Piper and Mary Tesh yeah. retired. I can't tell you how sad I was that when that <laughs> happened. I, it's just I love working with both yeah. of them. They're wonderful. Yeah. And I am pleased to say that replacing them, they can't fill the shoes in the same way, but they will bring a different and uh, exciting new sound to the orchestra. They grew up here and they were raised through the youth orchestra. They had contact with Mary and Charmin. Mm -hmm. And oh, so there's a real sense of continuity and uh, tradition. And also for me and the young timpanist that won the position, all three of them are, and, and there are more <laughs> in the orchestra now, uh, grew up in the youth orchestra. Mm -hmm. uh, they know each other and they are Anchorage. Uh, They're I just think that they, how exciting. Some of them went out to music school and came back to the community. So to me, this is the treasure of the Anchorage Symphony in that, and the wonder, because so many young people leave, you know, where they have some early success, they go out and they stay away um, right. and, and build careers in other places. But yeah. to come home and to bring your talent now fully formed yeah. back to the community I think is one of the greatest gifts we could ever have and so I'm excited to see the uh, a really uh, influx over the past two years of young I don't know what generation it is you know I don't yeah, know right. it's X or Millennium or whatever millennials generation or whatever symphony. great yeah. fantastic and uh, the exuberance the the ex there's just a, a sense of uh, excitement and and joy and it, it's changing, I think, the the tenor of the yeah. of the group out of a very pandemic. What are we going to do? Oh God, <laughs> kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. So this is a wonderful change from yeah. from dark times. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, coming out of the pandemic and being honored to be there recording things. I mean, even during the pandemic, when there were like just a few people allowed on stage yeah. for these live recordings. My general sense of the orchestra was of sections at the time like okay we're going to have a violin quintet or so forth you know recording yes but hearing all of the components that were just like the the arms of an octopus dying to come back together that might not be the best analogy for it but the way in which the orchestra had its own magnetism to become itself again yes and yeah. regain its lost voice you know people were just overwhelmed to be to get back into the hall can you say anything toward the difference between the Anchorage Symphony and who else do you conduct? I'm the music director of the Maryland Symphony, and so that's an orchestra I, I know very right. well. Uh, the difference between them? Well, yeah. first of all, Anchorage Symphony is extraordinarily lucky that virtually all of the members of the orchestra live in Anchorage. Um, in Maryland, everyone is basically a commuter to... 
uh, the venue where we perform in Hagerstown, Maryland, and anywhere we perform in Western Maryland. Most of them come from the Baltimore, Washington area, which is uh, 70, 70 miles away, Baltimore and Washington, from where we uh, play. So that's a different feeling. Um, it's it's a it's a wonderful orchestra. I love working with them. How, how, Fantastic. how would you describe the feeling? Is it just of a well? Um, a many sense of, of the many of the folks play regularly in five or six other organizations, uh, including okay. some of our military bands. Oh, okay. um, they're all professional. Uh, they make their living. All of them make their living purely through music and purely through playing in orchestras along with probably having a studio of students that they teach and they may teach at a conservatory university but all of them make their living through music uh, and through playing music in orchestras so there's a that's their life and they're driving all the, from one place to another i mean it's 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 a nomad kind of life whereas here in people are settled in. They may not have full-time music jobs during the day, but they're spectacular players and they come to all the rehearsals. Some of them do, of course. I mean, many of our musicians are full-time professional musicians as music teachers, teachers in the schools and the university, and have studios. But some have other day jobs. Yeah, and, well, I can think but of it, 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 yeah. I think the difference is, is that People know who these people are on stage, uh, whereas uh, many of the people in Maryland come in and over the years they've gained friendships with some of the patrons that come to the concerts, but it's not as close. It's not like my neighbor who I saw at the grocery store is playing violin in the orchestra and I'm going to come and support them, which I think is very special when you have a homegrown orchestra. And the Anchorage Symphony does, and that's an incredible thing. I mean, it really is. Do you feel a, a different sense of the orchestra, of difference of uh, purpose within a piece of, of music? Like when something new is presented, do you feel a difference between orchestras? Is there some sense of difference between the orchestras that you work with? I mean, these are pretty well delineated, these two orchestras you work with. But right. if you were to present the same piece to both of them, something they were both capable of presenting clearly, do you feel that they would present it very differently what what would oh, that's be, an interesting question how would, how would that's you so many layered i mean there's it's many layered i would say there are many different things i could say about this i will say that i've been in maryland for 25 years going mm -hmm. on 25 years mm -hmm. so they're used to my conducting right. style mm -hmm. and very luckily even though they don't live where we perform uh, they've been with me for those years for those decades so there's a sense of 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 uh, familiarity so they yeah. know that, and they and they also play with each other, not only in the Maryland Symphony, but in other orchestras together. So they know each other's playing. Um, so that's it. That's in some ways, uh, I know what kind of performance I'm going to get from from that organization because I've just been with it for a long time. Here, what I love about this orchestra, and and they've played Rodrigo like we're just doing. Um, you know, a, a piece with uh, Sharon Isbin that many people have played before. Many people have played the Bernstein that we're doing, um, or at least parts of it. Uh, and some of the pieces are brand new to them. What I love about this orchestra is that they rely on what they know of their colleagues, and they trust each other. And there's a certain instant 
people playing together faster because people know each other and are know what to expect from each other. So there's a certain sound, um, although that's changing because we have new leadership at the front. Yeah. So it, there's a different approach to string sound and production. Once you get a new concertmaster, then a whole new thing happens, which is exciting and wonderful every time it happens. So that's nice. Um, he is impeccably trained, and yeah. he was impe- he was trained specifically to be a concertmaster. He, really? he studied mm-hmm. with one of the greatest concertmasters. He already came almost ready-made in some ways. You know, you just put the experience on. And Catherine, brilliant, lovely, wonderful. Oh, my goodness. Um, what a thrill to work with her. Uh, when I knew her, she had had four decades of leadership yeah, and yeah. experience. And so that you cannot, it's hard to compare the two because they each have their own way. And one is learned through years of experience. The other is is taught it and is applying what they've learned. So it's a little bit different. Do you think to a certain extent the, the Anchorage Symphony, the strings, et cetera, would sort of intuit things a little more clearly through Catherine, just having had that depth of experience with her? Well, no, I, I think I think they still do. I mean, I, I, I think they know, I mean, because it's, there are leaders that have been in the orchestra that have been with the orchestra as leaders for many, many years. So right. there's already that sense of, of confidence and, and uh, you know, we know how to lay it down, yeah. and that's great. And that, I mean, I rely on that because uh, that's why I'm choosing really, really difficult music. That's that's not the only reason. It, it's great it music, difficult. but it's oh my god, it's very um, virtuosic. <laughs> no way. I mean, we're really hitting it out of the park yeah. from the beginning of the season. Well, I saw someone, uh, a couple of people, posted this thing where one of the directions in it was elephants. Yes, that's <laughs> which piece is that? That's Stephanie Berg. Uh, yeah. She's a, a young composer from St. Louis, who is an, an amazing virtuosic clarinetist and has amazing compositional chops as well, and uh, has found some real success down in, um, in St. Louis, where she's her homegrown orchestra down there and, and others. And uh, just, you know, one of the things that came out of the pandemic was just time to look around and see who's writing music, what's out there. And I came across this piece, and I thought, oh, what fun. And what a great way to start with craziness. Um, it, it's it, the opening piece in the yeah, show, Yeah, it's, right? it's ravish and mayhem. I thought, well, I love the words, and it's so fun, and it just opens up a celebration. And um, it's about an Arabian street fair, and yes, oh, elephants okay. enter. So that's that's basically what it is. But the main reason I, I thought I would pair it is because Chris Brubeck wrote a concerto called Affinity for Sharon Isbin, who is our soloist. And Sharon has... He wrote it for her? Yeah, yeah, he wrote it for her. And I did the premiere, and then I did the recording with Sharon for that. And um, it was written to celebrate Sharon's many collaborations with people from all different styles of music, whether it's uh, Amjad Ali Khan, the great Sarad player from India, and his sons, uh, she's gone on world tours, including to India just in the past few years, to do Indian ragas, to Antonio Jobim early in her career, to play bossa nova with him, to, you know, she's just done it. She does world music and she'll play with Nancy Hart of Hart and mm-hmm. Nancy Hart, Nancy Wilson of Hart, yes, or right. Steve Vai, the yeah. extraordinary yeah. Um, rock guitarist. I mean, she's just, she's just collaborated, Joan Baez. I mean, yeah. So he wrote this piece with all kinds of different styles, including jazz, a uh, little bit of shredding of rock, um, uh, and and some and some Middle Eastern music, sort of toward the end. And I thought, well, that'll 
hook into the Stephanie Berg so that we have a sense of people, uh, cul cultures from other, you know, just just uh, world music. That's really what I had in mind. And, you know, you have Bernstein, who is, I mean, the American, the symphonic dances from West Side Story are truly an American monument of music. They yeah. are they are some of the best music that has ever been written. Um, and it combines jazz, obviously. It combines Latino inflected music, uh, Puerto Rican, supposed to be evoking the Puerto Rican culture. But it's it's stunning, colorful, fabulous music. And, and that's, you know, since affinity is all about uh, reaching out and expressing through different cultures, different genres, all that. Uh, you know, I think the combination works really well, and 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 of course, then we have Espana from the, yes, by Chabrier from the nineteenth century, which is a, one of those tour de forces that, uh, those show pieces for orchestra, and um, that's a that's what we call the war horse. Yes, uh, on the program, the only war horse is Chabrier is Espana. Yeah. Yeah. All the others are more recently written, but they. They call for beauty in the orchestra and and precision and rhythm. Well, rhythm certainly. Uh, mm -hmm. The in miking up the percussion, there's plenty of percussion on that stage. Yeah, it's, yeah. More than I usual. love percussion. I know. And I know. It's a certain... fairly large. Is this a larger section of orchestra? I know. Notice that the stage setup is different this time. With the oh, bases uh, you up know on what? Top and five five horns. Right. right. Well, we have the assistant horn. Yeah, when it's a big piece like this, we want yeah. we need an assistant for Bernstein, a horn. Right. Yeah, so that's the fifth person. Um, but we are going to resume the positions that Randy Fleischer, my predecessor, uh, set up after working on acoustics in the hall. And so I had been largely unaware that that had been already established. And so when I was asked early on in my tenure, how do you like your orchestra set up? I gave my expectations, which mm -hmm. is a standard version. You know, you'll find that, that across the The main the difference I see is that the strings, you know, what I would consider to be a standard orchestra, the violins, one, two, violas, cello, and uh, basses right. spread across the front of the stage. What's the difference with The basses uh, are now in the back and are... are are going to be I'm going to see if it works yeah. I, I believe people when people tell me that they they heard a difference and that Randy really felt that that was a great setup to for blending and for more projection for the baseline yeah. I'm going to try it out and find out yeah. um, if that's true and and uh, it's going to take some time for me to get used to it too right. because I keep cueing the violas <laughs> thinking that they're cellos and you yeah. know the, the the violas and cellos are now switched so violas are on the outside so we'll see how this works I'm I want you, you know you have to mix it up according to how the hall works is that common to do that yes yeah, yeah. Uh, there are certain halls that favor certain ranges such that you move the orchestra to accommodate that. And it, it, you know, I think it's kind of dramatic to see all those bases up against the wall. Oh my back God. There. I did a little line drawing. Yeah, I they saw do. that. They it loom. was fantastic. <laughs> Loved it. Above. Loved it. But yeah, it definitely from the audience perspective when I'm out there, I have the, I have the best job in the world. I get to go out and listen <laughs> alone in the hall in the best seat oh, that I don't fantastic. have to pay yeah. for. And the, there is a projection in that hall because of that that wonderful shell. Yes, there's a projection amazing. that comes over the top. Right, and Randy did a lot of work on that, and and I just had been 
working under a misconception that it had been talked about but hadn't been implemented but it had been implemented he he had used that uh, arrangement and so I want to resume that because people tell me it really makes a big difference and and I wanted to hear it myself and I I think you know we had one season with a standard setup like I said I wanted to be responsive to the hall and once I understood that it had already been in use for I mean that that setup had been in use for a few seasons if not more uh, I wanted to try it and the best way to do it is to start off the year that way rather than to throw it in the middle when everyone's getting used to their vantage points so might as well start right from the beginning and develop the sound through the season so you're a violinist Mm -hmm. so your experience in the violin section I, I noticed this from talking to people in their sections um, as I mic them up I ask I ask what they hear what is your what is your experience in a section you're in the center there and so you're right. doing a blend of everything when right. you're in the violins or when you're in any of these sections what are you actually hearing as a performer on that well stage? first of all you hear your own instrument under your ear and you right. hear everything around you so you hear your colleagues and that's the most important goal is to be playing as a section together right. and to be following the concertmaster. Um, it's fascinating to me when I'm conducting and I look at my colleagues playing, their eyes are, if they're up, sometimes they'll look at me, yeah. but many times they're looking at the concertmaster who is always with me in right. some way, in mm-hmm. spirit at least. No, right. but he, he is. He's watching all the time. Yeah. He's responding. He usually comes with the music memorized. It's just, he's brilliant and just prepared and fabulous and sets an amazing, for me, um, model and uh, example, I, I hope for everybody. Then you start here. Of course, you hear the seconds that are right next to you. If you're in the first violin section, if you're in the seconds, you hear violas and first. You hear those things around you. Uh, most string players are going to be listening to string sound, to ensemble in that way, and they appreciate the solos that pop through from their vantage point like the oboe solo will usually come through Um, you'll usually they'll usually hear the harp because it's nearby and certainly the percussion Mm -hmm. Um, may not have the same experience unless if you're in the cello section you really experience the brass yes you know so it 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 can definitely color your experience of the whole but why the concertmaster is so important is that person, along with maybe principal viola or cello, has the nearest to the conductor's ear vantage point. So the concertmaster has pretty much a sense of the entire sound of the orchestra and can really, that's why it's such an important leadership position, um, and then makes the adjustments as necessary. But it's been a while since I've been you know yeah. uh, the the great thing is if you know the music sw- well enough you can be out of your instrument aware of what's going on but being able to appreciate other people's solos and most people can hear each other i mean if it's a good stage and this is and with a wonderful shell people can hear each other yeah i think that was one yeah. of the main differences and uh, however long ago it was yeah. maybe even 20 years that yeah. we got the I mean, shell 
that's why you have a conductor is mostly for balance mm -hmm. and starting and stopping <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and just reminding of all the other stuff in between yeah so last night and i don't always hear everything you say on stage but in the last piece i think you were you were referring to performance issues on it I think beyond performance issues, you deal also with, you come up with the right adjective for the motivation for what a piece is, because you might be a lot more familiar with it. Right. Like, you know, the, the, the Ravish and Mayhem. They, they may be completely unfamiliar with Oh, it's with a brand the piece. new piece. Of, I mean, it's right. not a brand new piece of music. It's already 10 years old, but yeah. they would not have played it or, her, or know her style. Right. So, and, yeah. and then people may have looked it up, et, right. et cetera. But your job up on top there is not only to conduct but what else, what other insights can you infuse into the music? Once they get the notes right on something like Ravish and Mayhem, what else are you trying to imbue into a performance? Well, first of all, the whole swing of the piece, um, but give some context and, and let them know. It's an Arabian street fair. The imagination, the motivation was the, she was imagining an Arabian street fair from long ago and w with and yes, and she says, and yes, there are elephants. <laughs> <laughs> so this exotic, you know, sound, and you hear the elephant sound, it's great toward mm -hmm. the end, and then the music should get a little faster and excited about, because the elephants have arrived, so, you know, we're really in full swing. I think that's the right. idea. Yeah. But throughout this concert, rhythm is everything. And, right. and that, I think it came, rhythm in an orchestra, the dance, for the orchestra to dance, to literally, you know, they've been, they had been playing, the orchestra itself had been playing as a service institution to communities and to aristocracy even before that, it had been entertainment. Right. And so this whole concert, there are, there are moments of extreme entertainment. Um, and then there are moments of beautiful repose, which really come forth, I think, in the 20th century and beyond. The personal, really, I mean, of course, 19th century as well. Right. Uh, with like Bernstein's, um, Bernstein, but with Berlioz's Symphony Fantastique, where he puts his whole right. life history into right. the piece. But, you know, the Rodrigo comes to that second movement uh, with that personal story of Rodrigo nearly losing his wife, who miscarried their first child. So the mm -hmm. total tragedy around that turned into one of the most achingly beautiful melodies. That's it's, you know, and it's it, it, so good. Yeah, I just love that piece so much. I, when um, Sharon has been said that the last harmonics that she plays are Rodrigo imagining his lost child's soul going into heaven, that was just, you know, it brings tears to the eyes just knowing that. Now, do you need to know that to play it beautifully? Not necessarily, but I think it gives a certain I I reverence think, think and right. a certain understanding in the way that you play it that this is a this is full of, of at the time grief and mourning and fear. On so, you know, there's these moments of I'm going to lose my wife as well as my child at this mm -hmm. moment, and this is <laughs> can't be more tragic. So when the wife recovered. Then he was able to memorialize that moment as both a life goes on and will continue. Then it becomes something that he can use musically. Yeah. Uh, but he, but it was created in this moment of intense fear and grief. And also uh, Chris, Chris Brubeck, who had just lost his mother, who was beloved, I mean, the beloved wife of Dave Brubeck, the great, you know, mm -hmm. his father. So he, uh, Dave Brubeck had written a piece that, he had dedicated to his wife, Autumn in Washington Square. It's a famous song. 
I was talking to Chris and Sharon was talking to Chris and we were explaining about the Rodrigo and that whole situation in the second movement yeah. and that uh, the piece as he had write, we I was involved in the writing of this piece and Sharon of course um, in that just coming to him and saying because he was having trouble figuring out what the slow section was going to be right. and I think Sharon mentioned the Rodrigo being that whole second movement history that I just uh, yeah. spoke of and and he thought well why don't I memorialize my mother and use the music of my father and set it to guitar and orchestra beautiful so it's a it's a it's a memory piece as well in that yeah. in that but then the rest of it is all rhythm and dancing and uh, the kinds of things you think of with the guitar music um, you know, well, I believe it comes through I think motivating a musician or it's very clear with a singer if you tell them like this song is about such and such a thing I think everything in your body as a performer conspires to get something across, you know, right. your shoulders may drop a little bit in a moment, and you yeah. may you may put just that much more of a millisecond pause in something. Right. But I think the communication of of pure, if you want to call it emotion, but a pure musical experience, comes across if someone is is motivated, and that's what I what I enjoy about the moments you're up there and, and the music is right, and you're able to tell them something else about yeah. something that. They are paying attention. Well, Everybody you know, is, is when you working. think that the New York Philharmonic knows everything and, you know, doesn't need to be taught anything. <laughs> uh, but I do remember Franz Felser Moest, uh, young, he's now the, he's the conductor many years now of the Cleveland Orchestra. He was conducting the New York Philharmonic. I happened to be the cover conductor, assistant conductor for that at the time. And I remember hearing him talking about Mozart's Linz Symphony and uh, the the dance movement, the minuet in the symphony. And he's from Linz, Austria. Mm-hmm. And he had a very special take on the tempo and the way that that dance should be conveyed, mm-hmm. which I wouldn't have known about, yeah. but it was such a traditional dance. It, it retained over the centuries the movement and the rhythm of it and the tempo of it and the inflection. And I remember that the New York Philharmonic was very grateful to hear that from mm-hmm. someone who said, you know, I, I'm from Linz, and we dance this a special way. And he's using one of our traditional folk melodies that we all know and that we do every year at festival or whatever it was, mm-hmm. you know, I'm making mm-hmm. it up. So I don't remember yeah, yeah. exactly. I remember him being so very, very sincere, and the orchestra just going, thank you. Because most of, he could have just come on and asked for this to be played a little longer yeah. and that to be a little bit more hesitant or whatever it was that he was doing and not explain the context. And they yeah. would have just gone, why is he doing this so differently? Than, I mean, it's Mozart. Everyone knows how this should go. Right. <laughs> it's 200 years, 300 years old at this point. Why are you telling us yeah. how to play? And yet when he said, but I am from this or I have this personal experience, Um, That made a very big difference. So even with some of the best orcas of the the world, giving them a little context when it comes from an absolute uh, experience certainty, that that can change something. Mm -hmm. And even with the Leonard, the the Bernstein. After 60 years, and the piece is at least 60 plus years old Mm -hmm. um, at this point, some of this is now natural to an American orchestra. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's still not natural to a European orchestra. Interesting, yeah. But it's getting more interesting. I mean, because Americans usually take that piece over or something, and you know. Yeah. But uh, honestly, 
you still have to remind American orchestras that it's jazz, yeah. but it's oh. so brilliantly orchestrated. But it's jazz. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's of its time. It's fifties yeah. jazz, yeah. and it's cool, and it's it's of its time. So it's crystallized. It's and it's a brilliant person. It's Leonard Bernstein who is yeah. who is in the midst of it as a young man and enthusiastic along with Stephen Sondheim and all these amazing, I mean, it's just a moment in time that all these great people got together Mm -hmm. to create a show and the music is, you know, it doesn't get any better than that. Well, it's quite a bloom and certainly just as bombastic as you could imagine. It really is. Really huge. But it requires unbelievable expertise and precision at the same time to get it across. Yeah. And you can't, you can't overdo it, and you cannot be a different style of jazz. It's it's a cleaner, driving, yeah. rhythm-oriented kind of thing. And also, it's a man who conducts Stravinsky. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's Rite of Spring at yeah. the same time. It's right. the whole 20, yeah. and it's an yeah. orchestra. And yeah. that's what's so incredible about it. I, I, sometimes I'd be studying it, and I just have to stop and go, oh, my God, this is so incredible. <laughs> I mean, my heart is racing, everything. Even as I'm just looking at the page, all that stuff is coming at me. How do you drive that car? Experience and conviction and, and preparation and just knowing it. And, I mean, that piece, I've been, my whole life has been, that piece has existed. Right. Um, and it's been fresh and new. Nowadays, with so many things being forbidden in schools, I don't even know if it would be allowed to be shown in schools at this point because yeah. it deals with racism and all that kind of thing. Yeah. But that was shown in my school, mm-hmm. in I think in my junior in middle school in junior high. Yeah. I'm I don't I, I don't then, and yeah. they showed yeah. things like that. I mean, I saw of course you know how they used to do the Wizard of Oz on TV every mm-hmm. year. Yeah, it was sort of like that with West Side Story. That was a great way to teach music history. Uh, Shakespeare in English you know I mean Mm -hmm. all of that people were unafraid to use the kinds of what was pop I mean because West Side Story was kind of pop it was a Broadway show Um, and it was a great movie they showed that to us as children as 10 and 12 year olds we saw that and it, it I don't think anyone had us you know no one was thinking this is weird or inappropriate it was like this is us now this is where we are this is our this brings up all the big questions and and guess what Shakespeare was talking about uh, uh, feuds yes. <laughs> and tribalism yeah. way back hundreds of years ago what are we scared of this is something we should use to talk about our reality and how we can make life better but that's my opinion well, anyway there's so many so many messages <laughs> in something like right. that, that as someone with children you can tell them things just straight out, and they, they're not ready to understand it. Right. But they will understand a basic story. Yeah. And little by little, the layers will unfold right. as time goes And then by. music is able to, to reach even further because it can convey the emotion of something um, in, in ways that somehow subvert the language so that you're getting beyond sort of the big stop signs that are put up in every culture throughout time all all the all the taboos it can kind of slip yeah. underneath <laughs> and they and they come and go yeah too. and they do come and go and it means different things in different times yeah so right now uh my purpose was to bring a, a monument of american music but 
to me, the whole concert all talks about the world and reaching to other cultures and reaching to the joy in other cultures Beautiful. and, the, and the, the things that bring us together. In order to put together a program like that, are you mostly in charge of the programming of these things? Or well, that's an interesting question. And, you know, of course, I have collaboration with the Music um, Advisory Committee that yeah. consists of orchestra members, uh, board members, some very highly regarded community members would be invited in too to, you know, give feedback mm-hmm. and to give suggestions. So it is a collaboration, although for the most part, if I suggest a guest artist, obviously I look at to their repertoire and what they are yeah. known for or and I knew the Brubeck and I thought there's a relationship with this orchestra and Chris Brubeck because, of course, he he brought there, Nick yeah. Kendall's Spontaneous Combustion. He was a good friend of Randy's. I mm-hmm. know Chris. Yeah. We, went to, we went to the same high school, so, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I know Chris a long time. I'm going to break into this recording for just a minute and mention that due to publisher's copyright restrictions, I'm not able to play you the entire first performance of the Anchorage Symphony. Many of the pieces, like the Chris Brubeck and Leonard Bernstein, are still under copyright. But not, it turns out, España. So I'm able to play it for you right here, Elizabeth Schultz conducting España with the Anchorage Symphony Orchestra. Thank you. 
let's go to the next show. Okay. Well, you know what? That all started with uh, Appalachian Spring. Someone in the administration, um, highly regarded, uh, said, "Boy, I love Appalachian Spring. Love to hear it." <laughs> okay, let's do a pe- let's let's do a concert around it's not Appalachian a hard yes. Spring. Yeah. So um, that's easy to to build on. Mm-hmm. Bring someone new. One of the things about this season, I'm trying to bring someone who is living and youngish mm-hmm. or really surprisingly unknown and should be known a little bit better. Uh, and Quinn Mason is, yeah. you know, current and highly regarded. An extraordinarily gifted young man who was writing full orchestra pieces when he was like 10 years old or something. Uh, someone recognized his incredible talent and he has been nurtured, particularly in, in Texas where he's from. Um, but a lot of people have recognized his talent and 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 He's still very young. I think he's made his 20s at this point. But he's an extraordinary, very bright young man. And he sees the orchestra as an opportunity for experimentation, but not in a way that isn't accessible to to listeners. Mm -hmm. He he takes you on a journey. It's music that is, is based on the music he likes. And some of that's pop music, but a lot of it is the traditional marvelous big orchestra colors and the Tchaikovsky's and the Rachmaninoff's and the Mahler's and things Mm -hmm. like that. So he gravitates to that kind of expression as well as his own inner devoted, religious devoted beliefs. And that comes in. Is it in three movements? I see it's it's called a joyful trilogy. It's a trilogy, trilogy and you know I'm in the midst of of working on it myself. So you'll hear the, you'll hear how it is. I just thought it was it's a it's a big statement piece and it has contrast right. um, a moment of, of reflection and then joy again and all of it is 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 the celebration of of the orchestra of, of music and and what it means to him personally it's right. it's a personal piece Florence yeah. Price Florence Price has been a project of the and a discovery uh, in a a joyous project, a discovery um, that Randy had already set into motion with the first symphony, and then I brought the cane break dances um, last year or the year before. It, this is a continuation of exploring her music. I mean, I think it was Mon- Margaret Bonds that gave the premiere with the Chicago Symphony of this concerto. This is something that shows off Florence Price. It's it's her. It's 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 a self portrait in a way. Uh, it's brilliant and it's joyful. And the woman who is playing it with us, Karen Walwyn, has been a scholar of this piece mm, okay. and a performer of this piece for many years. So she brings a certain... She also has been a deep scholar of Florence Price's music, mm-hmm. all of the piano music, and has, has made some recordings of that. Sure. And so knows and knows Florence Price's music very So in, in preparing one of these pieces, mm-hmm. you're in contact with her. I mean, obviously, there's discussions. Yes. With, and do you gain a great deal of insight? Certainly. How the, Certainly. How I've the heard her give a, a lecture on Florence Price. And how she, long is the piece? Oh, it's, it's somewhat short. It's all in one movement, so mm-hmm. it's about 16 minutes or something mm-hmm. like that. But it Again, Florence Price brings her own life, just like Quinn Mason does. Yeah. But Florence Price brings the history of her people. She comes from a mixed background, sla- enslaved people and also white slave owners. So mm-hmm. there's a mixed bag in there. and uh, But she's, she is confident and she's fluent in many different styles. Mm-hmm. And 
her training was, again, impeccable. At the turn of the 20th century, she is at the New England Conservatory studying with the greatest, you know, with Chadwick, George Chadwick, one right. of the great American composers who, you know, received his his training from Europe. So she's she's fluent in European, the European classical language, right. but also wants to remind us of what's going on in the world, jazz, because jazz is in there, a little bit early jazz. She never goes full blast, but there's jazz in it, and then there's also uh, the the great American spiritual. Whenabouts was this piece composed? Yeah. In the 30s. So it's a different kind of jazz than the Bernstein jazz. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then, of course, William Grant still called the dean of African-American music. He was probably one of the most skilled and accomplished African-Americans and successful African-Americans in a time when when that community was often shunned and ignored and yeah. not given voice. He was given voice and did have success. So did Florence Price, by the way. And they were uh, compatriots. They both grew up in Little Rock, a block away from each other. Really? They knew each other. They were part of a, a very accomplished middle-class community in Little Rock before it was uh, burned out and lynched out and, and destroyed and everyone had to move to Chicago or somewhere else where it was a bit safer to live and exist as a human mm. being. It was, you know, we have a, we have a, a tough story, yeah. that, you know. Yeah. But these are two brilliant compatriots that went to the heights. It really did accomplish things that not a lot of composers of any race <laughs> accomplished. Yeah. So, yeah. um, and this serenade is, is just a beautiful piece of music for orchestra yeah. that he actually wrote for a u- young orchestra. I can't remember where, Minnesota or Montana or somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote for, as a commission, and it's a lovely piece of music. That implies that it's easy to play. It's not at all. That's the, that's the <laughs> greatness of it. Was, yeah. And do remember that youth orchestras of the early 20th century mm-hmm were the orchestra in a community Uh, and usually had the maestro as the teacher of the high school and the level of playing at the high school level in the 1940s and 50s was very different you know my mother played in an orchestra that Lauren Mazel was a violinist in in Mm -hmm. Pittsburgh Mm -hmm. the high school orchestras were as close to a community orchestra level or even better sometimes and that's because the community orchestras had all the professors and all these marvelous players from Europe who had come over after the war and were teaching. Um, And music in the schools was something that was a given. That died out in the 60s and 70s to a dearth of music education and mm-hmm. it has been building back slowly but it's it's kind of one of the sad things that happened in America was um, when the defunding of music in the schools happened and it was not seen as a priority unless it was a, a marching band for the for the football teams. Well, that brings us to an interesting connection because as Sherry Reddick transitions out of the symphony yes. as being executive yeah. director, Denise Brown Scheifler, and yes. she used to be with the Anchorage Youth Orchestras. And again, it comes full circle, having been led for many years by our principal trumpet assistant conductor, Lynn Wieda. Yes. I mean, now yeah. there's yeah. new leadership there, but he had it for 40, I mean, for many years. Yes, uh, yeah. That tradition, thankfully, has been strong here in, yeah. in Anchorage, and it is feeding the Anchorage Symphony directly, yeah. which is fabulous. Yeah. So that used to happen. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't have been surprising that William Grant still would write a, a challenging piece 
for a high school orchestra. Right. I had played that serenade, and I, I love William Grant still, and, and um, so I thought this would be great to have two, two people. And then you have Copeland. I yeah. mean, these are all of the same. Well, Copeland's a little younger. William Grant still, no, they're, they're pretty much compatriots. Mm-hmm. All of them are of the same generation, I think. I think William and Florence are a little bit older than Copeland. He's, he's a little bit younger. But they're they're pretty close in age, and certainly they are thriving at the same times in the 30s and 40s. And of course, the Appalachian Spring is again another monument of American music. There is yeah. no question that this piece is iconic at this point. And Quinn Mason might be making new icons. I don't know, but uh, he's speaking to what I love about Quinn is that he embraces the history of classical music and of orchestral music and and it has been something that that nourishes him he's not trying to break out of it he's not trying to rebel against it Mm -hmm. he's saying we can make some new things with sounds and and things that are familiar to you and here's how i i this is why i love is that a trend in american music yeah that's what's so great we have some brilliant composers in our orchestra as a young brett Lindsay, who's just stunning and he uses uh, the language of devotion Mm -hmm. and of worship as well as the great vistas that have been created by soundtracks of john williams and others last year uh, yeah his string piece that was presented at kaleidoscope was just absolutely yeah and he he continues to write and I think we'll we'll hear from him again in near future. And Bill Clem, who plays with us yeah. often, yeah. what another another brilliant composer yeah, whose yeah. music we probably will hear even later this season if yeah, we can. I've, yeah, I've heard a couple of his pieces. Yeah, that are, I mean we're so lucky. It just seems so in this, effortless. Like, yeah, <laughs> and you know, but it's and so it's very accessible oh, to yeah. our audiences. It's not the kind of music that <clears throat> is confrontational. It's it's music that does care if you listen. And that's that's a comment on I, I can't remember who said it, but Milton Babbitt I think who wrote a polemic pe- uh, mm-hmm. article saying we don't care if you listen. <laughs> I understand where they were coming from on a cerebral level, yeah. And there is a kind of cold respect for yeah. all of the work that they have done, yeah. Um, but it's not music that I am interested in yeah. performing because yeah. uh, the audiences really don't like it. And beyond that, yeah. the players really hate playing it. Yeah. Um, and again, it is of its time. It comes out of a, a really terrible century of war and mm-hmm. isolation and anger and all of this stuff. And it's, it is of its time, this, yeah. this idea of going deeply into the mathematical fundamentals uh the sound fundamentals of what music is just like art did i mean jackson pollock is is on some levels incomprehensible on Mm -hmm. other levels because it's visual and has color Mm -hmm. and and creates things maybe beyond what jackson pollock even thought of yeah um or maybe not uh maybe it is what he thought of uh it's easier to see that visually than it is to hear it yeah because you would hear a lot of, I mean, browns and blacks all smished together yeah. um, look really cool in a rhythm if, if they have yeah. texture, but it's harder musically. And I'm not saying that contemporary music is Jackson Pollock, but it's just that abstract expressionism or whatever mm-hmm. it was yeah. uh, is easier to see than to hear. And, and I, I personally believe it's why certain voices like Florence Price and William Grant Still were absolutely snuffed out, had less to do with the fact that they were 
African-American. It did have to do with the fact that they were African-American. I'm not going to say that that wasn't part of it. But it also was that they were conversing in the European language, the traditional European Mm -hmm. language, in ways that were meant to communicate their traditions, their life experience, and their joy at engaging Mm-hmm. with a language that had that was including them for a moment. Well, all I can say is the music business shut them down because they weren't modern enough. Right. It wasn't of the time, and they were they died, and then they were forgotten. Take a look at the album covers from right. back then. They were crazy. Yeah. yeah. So all I'm, uh, I'm saying that we did it to ourselves. Yeah. Small dwindling uh, audiences are our fault. It's not Mozart's fault. It's not Beethoven's fault. It's not anyone's fault. That music will always exist no matter whether we rise or fall as musical institutions but our choices of programming we have to be very cognizant of it and I am cognizant of it as I bring new voices in I make sure that those new voices are all about communication with the audience Tim Fain who's coming in with his new edge of a dream it's a beautiful beautiful concerto and there's nothing in it that someone can't find joy or beauty and Ruth Gipps again another kind of forgotten voice in in England she was a conductor she was composing but she had to do it all herself in other words she sort Mm -hmm. of (laughs) self-employed an orchestra (laughs) to play her music and um, she was always on the fringes and she was a powerhouse and you know people rolled their eyes oh there's Ruth again but she writes beautiful strong lovely music Mm -hmm. and she was a younger colleague of Ray Fon Williams, whose London Symphony, again, is of its time, right mm-hmm. before World War One, and it's the end of an era there. Yeah. And it's so beautiful to hear the big chimes of Big Ben and stuff, and there's something very impressionistic about about it, and that's why I paired it with Edge of a Dream, because there's a, there's a dream and melancholy and nostalgia in the Ray Fon Williams, which is achingly beautiful. Again, it's got your marches, your English marches in in history but it's also there's a a nostalgia for time that's passing very quickly and turning into the ugliness of the 20th century (laughs) from world war one it's right before that it just lingers on that and it 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 harkens to a time that will soon pass tim fain's piece is written in the pandemic and in a time of yearning and a time to to get through it and uh to, to bring new life so, uh, and Ruth Gibbs again, a voice that was of its time and kind of got overlooked, but brings a kind of gentle beauty. This is the third concert? Yeah, that's what, that's... what's the concert called? I think they call it Dreamscapes, oh. I think are, are, are marvelous How many, people how many main names. concerts are there this year? Five, Five. Uh, classics, and then right. some pops. You're right. going to hear some John Williams later on in the year, and then silent film, of course. The John Williams one, is it a, a feature of the show? Is it mostly all John Williams? Yeah, I think it will be exclusively John Williams, conducted by a brilliant young conductor, Lucas Walden, um, who is uh, making a name for himself as a pops conductor. And, and, you know, reminds me a great deal of Randy Fleischer. Mm -hmm. So I think it's kind of exciting to have him. He's young, he's enthusiastic, he's energetic, charismatic, and he, he is of that kind of, you know, young. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, and it has his feet in the pop's world, right. directly in the pop's world. So I'm excited that he's going to be able to be here with us. I mean, throughout the season, if you look at the rest of the season, where uh, one of the pieces that we, col- well, that Randy commissioned was Vivian Fung's trumpet concerto. So Mary Elizabeth Bowden is coming. She's one of the great virtuos- virtuosic trumpet players. 
and she's going to play that new piece along with a show piece. I asked her to play a show piece right. as well yeah. um, that just shows off in a, in a fun way variations on uh, Bellini's yeah. Norma. So that'll be fun. There'll, there'll be uh, familiar melodies, you know, but that's a, a kind of yeah. a show piece. Vivian Fung's piece is, is, is modern and, and has a different take on the trumpet. Uh, yeah. Very lyrical, but, you know, some, some tough spots for mm-hmm. the orchestra to play which, you know, you always want the orchestra to be a, a partner with the soloist. That That's always fun. And then, of course, uh, we start off with this cool piece by Martin New, Thunderbolt P-47, or 147. Anyway, it was a great airplane. In, it was the war horse of, of airplanes in World War II, you know, the carrier. Right. It brought yeah. a lot of... And, and it has a lot of meaning, actually, for people in our orchestra whose fathers flew it. Really? You know, I mean, yeah. yeah, there's connection. There's direct connections uh-huh. up here with the uh, Air Force here. There's direct connections with that actual airplane. And so this is... This is Martin New's experience in that airplane, uh-huh. <laughs> and he he was so grateful to it because it helped win the war, uh, which was a horrendous you know it's the Second World War. So yeah, yeah. It, it's a, it's really cool. You hear the engines, and it it's yeah. just a really neat piece. And then Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, which is um, as much a war symphony as anything, really. I mean, it's <laughs> it, it it oh gosh, it's so iconic. Yeah. So How was Beethoven I, received at the time with like the fifth? Oh, I think it was received as something that was very important. Oh, okay. Uh, but I think a lot of people heard it as a little bit of cacophony. Yeah. yeah. Um, and as in your face. I mean, it was modern music. Right. And Beethoven was someone to be grappled with and yes, dealt with. Yeah. Even though, I mean, people knew he was a genius and they knew he was important and very important people recognized mm-hmm. him yeah. and took him under wing. But he was he was he was breaking. He was iconoclastic, I guess, yeah. um, and uh, you know, breaking down, discovering, and setting forth high water marks all they, the time. They, they call that the shock of the new. Where, yeah, I think so. Yeah, you're suddenly confronted right. with something, and you and you have to grapple with it for the rest of the night and try to remember the yeah. melody. I think what but, people don't understand is how difficult Beethoven is to play for an orchestra, really? even as a 300 year old piece of music. Mm-hmm. At this point, it is over 300 years, 200 years old. It's over 200 years old. Um, I'm thinking, you know. But he wasn't writing it just to be difficult. Oh, my God. I don't even know how they played his music then because they didn't have a lot of rehearsals, and these things are hard. And what we forget is that an orchestra such as the Anchorage Symphony Orchestra, they play Beethoven often, but they they don't play the fifth every year, whereas a New York Philharmonic, which has... 40 plus weeks of music every mm-hmm. they probably do see the Beethoven Fifth Symphony almost every year if not every other year and so it's in their hands and right. so it sounds a little bit more so this will be a very challenging concert for the orchestra every every concert is going to be challenging for this orchestra but right. that th- that is the point I'm sure we all have our own image of how that piece should go is mm-hmm. it the precision involved it's revelatory? precision and relentless repetition of figures that have to be played at the edge of your seat all the time. It's hard. It's it's exhausting. He wrote, he was deaf, so he was in his head so much. Right. He was creating superhuman music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, by the third symphony, he's already writing superhuman music that yeah. is technically at the edge for every instrument. They have to play sometimes in, in ranges in ways that that just really pull the last ounce of of energy out of you. And in turn, did that affect how instruments were built from then on? 
it was the rise of the virtuoso player. You have all those great violinists that are coming through. Uh, Mozart uh, wrote for a virtuoso clarinetist, so that's set. And you have trumpet players that Berlioz wrote a, a little obligato part in one of his, in the Symphony Fantastique for a famous trumpet player. All of the instruments are pairing virtuoso with builders who start building new and better instruments, more powerful instruments. Right. Even the strings on a the fiddle and the, the way that a bow is constructed, mm-hmm. all of that is changing in the early 19th century. To And by mid-century, 19th century, mid to the 1870s, you have the modern powerful instruments. They're, they're almost where we are now, although mm-hmm. they have been perfected even more to become even more powerful in the 20th century. Um, you know, better mouthpieces and bells yeah. on the, on the yeah. brass and all that kind of thing. I believe some priceless violins were modified also. The neck is longer. The fingerboard is longer, so you can play higher up. It, and you had to, many had to put new necks on some of those instruments to make them more powerful. Um, and certainly the strings themselves have become uh, metal or wired uh, yeah. gut strings or wired uh, now it's not gut of course not yeah. cat gut it never was it was a yeah. different animal <laughs> but it was um, uh, now it's all synthetic and I've noticed in the and last couple power. decades on uh, bases there's an extension on right. top to, to so you can go drop. lower yeah. you can go even lower great innovations to the yeah. instruments during Beethoven and beyond and even with Mozart yeah. already starting that, that idea of making a more powerful instrument to cut through um, the masses that were getting bigger and bigger, the orchestras themselves, strings, everything's getting bigger. So, um, and then uh, after that, we have a season finale, which is, um, I always pick one of my favorite pieces to play, and, um, you know, we have Scheherazade, and, uh, but we start out with a, a celebration from China, uh, Gao Hong. Mm-hmm. Uh, she lives in, in Minnesota with her husband, her husband's a composer as well, and this is a fabulous piece. This uses percussion galore, but all the all the Chinese drums and sounds, and it is meant to. We started with an Arabian festival. Mm-hmm. We're finishing with an evocation of Chinese festivals throughout the year, so the Moon Festival and the you know. So it's fabulous and and bright and wonderful, and she'll be with us, which is exciting. She's right. planning to be with us to, uh, to do that, and then. Um, a pianist that I've worked with before, Terrence Wilson, brilliant man, is doing piano, the second piano concerto of Rachmaninoff, which mm-hmm. is, you know, I hate to say it, but it's just such a crowd favorite. <laughs> and it's just one of those, you know, yeah. you can't go wrong with something like that. And yeah. then the Scheherazade is one of my personal favorite pieces to conduct. And um, it allows us to celebrate our concertmaster mm-hmm. because, of course, the voice of Scheherazade, the storyteller, is given to the violin mm-hmm. to play the solo right. that weaves in and out of each of the four movements. It's kind of like a symphony, but it's really fairy tales or the Arabian Nights. So we right. started with an Arabian street festival. We finished with right. the Arabian Nights. I tried to weave through with Tim Fain, Dreamscapes, Edge of a Dream. You know the stories, if possible. For you know, for the trumpet. I mean, for a trumpet, you have to have a big old symphony like right. Beethoven's Five yeah. because yeah. that's just trumpet. Yeah. You know, there's big triumph at the end of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So just, just an idea of telling stories, um, composers bringing their own personal story into their music. 
I think it's a very exciting season. It's yeah, going to be very demanding for the orchestra, good, yeah. but it will bring pieces that people are familiar with, but just pairing them with some some different perspectives. And yeah. as we invite people back into participating as an audience member, there's been so much isolation and. Yeah. People have gotten out of the habit of going out of their homes to hear live performances. And so yeah. we're hoping to pull people back in, but not necessarily always with the old things that they can they can get 75 versions of on YouTube, but some yeah. new music that they really won't hear yeah. on YouTube or anywhere yeah. else. And to hear their colleagues, their friends, their family on stage. There's it's so nothing important. like a concert. It's like a film, only a lot more on the edge. Yeah. Everyone is gathered in the room hoping for the best yes <laughs> and even more more than the best they want insight they I, want to hear exactly. love agony everything they right. want these things it is returned in spades yeah like how well how we're hoping to to have our friends join us again and to have new uh people try us out and check yeah. us out and be as enchanted by music and overwhelmed by it and inspired and brought through a, a journey for a couple hours yeah. on an evening and buy the the very best that Anchorage has to offer, which yeah. is their symphony, which is such a great, great group of fantastic artists all gathered together on stage with one effort to convey many different voices, many different voices over hundreds of years, the great thoughts. I can't think of anyone better to command that ship. <laughs> Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you very much. And that's the show. Thanks for stopping by. The Alaska Music Show and Podcast is produced by me, Kurt Riemann, in beautiful, surreal studios in beautiful downtown Anchorage, just a few blocks away from the beautiful Performing Arts Center, where you can find the Anchorage Symphony Orchestra. You can find more from the Alaska Music Show on your favorite podcast platform, the Alaska Music Podcast. And find us on the web at nightworksmedia.com. There's a few things in there that might be of interest to you. Drop us a line. Tell us what you think. So until next time, try to find yourself in a large, dark room with a bunch of friends listening to live music. And stay warm with an Alaskan song in your heart.